Okay, students, let's have now lecture four, Introduction to Sophocles, Athenian Tragedy, and Oedipus the King, lines 462 to 982, slides 66 to 90. Let's begin now. All right. The chorus nervously articulates the emotionally charged nature of the situation. Recall that we had, uh, that Oedipus had come down to see the people play Britain and it called them children and it said that he feels more afflicted than any particular citizen because he himself is like the father of all the citizens. And so whereas they only feel the pain of their one body, he feels the pain of the body politic in general. And that he had sent his brother-in-law Creon, uh, brother to his wife Jocasta, also mother, um, uh, to the oracle at uh, Delphi. Uh, or excuse me, Pitho, the Pythian oracle. Apollo had then sent back something, uh, 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 some good slash bad news with Creon, which suggests that the reason for the plague is that there has been a murder, a murder that has been unavenged. And so, in order to gain light on that particular prophecy, Oedipus also sends for Tiresias, the blind prophet, who we ran into, uh, though dead, in book 11 of the Odyssey. He is now alive, because recall, this is a time before the Odyssey, before the Iliad, before even the Theban War, which comes before the Trojan War. Those were the two great classical wars of the Golden Age of Heroes, um, Hesiod's Golden Age of Heroes. And so, recall that when Tiresias came, he refused to say what it is that he knew. And he refused to say it because he said it brought him no happiness and it would bring Oedipus no happiness. And so at the end of yesterday, what we ended up hearing was that Tiresias, uh, out of anger, screams, you have lain with your mother and you have killed your father, which Oedipus thinks is ridiculous, and they both exited the stage. And so, today begins with the chorus. And the chorus says, well, both parties seem pretty upset. Both Tiresias and Oedipus spoke from anger. And so... Then, having had his name impugned, Creon, recall that one of the uh, sort of manic claims that Oedipus had made was that Creon had colluded with Tiresias so that Tiresias could impugn Oedipus's name so that he might uh, step down, or, uh, abdicate, or be exiled so that Creon could become king. Makes some sense. Creon himself has a blood relation to the throne. Uh, was around before Oedipus was around, uh, so he thinks, well, and even just in general, because he is obviously older than Oedipus. Um, and so it is plausible that perhaps Creon could want the throne and could be working against Oedipus, but now Creon is here to address this claim. So, one way to look at Creon and to understand why Oedipus might feel threatened by him in order to think in this way is that Creon is a symbol of legitimate authority as he is brother to the former king, sorry for saying that he was brother to Jocasta, he was the brother-in-law, he was raised in Thebes, and he is closer in age to the queen. Hmm. Oedipus is a younger, tyrant startup, so he's younger than the queen. Doesn't seem to be as good, say, a match as Creon, who was uh, her brother-in-law earlier. He is himself a tyrant, which means he doesn't have a blood connection to the throne, whereas Creon, obviously does have a blood connection to the throne. You might want to try to do a little more of that. And, uh, uh, and so uh, Creon will now go through pains to persuade Oedipus that his life has not really changed so much since Laius died, and that he, uh, he actually prefers to have all the perks of royalty, but without any of the responsibilities of the crown, which I think is a fantastic argument. He says, what is it that I really stand to gain, Oedipus? 
by becoming king. I already am royal. I live in the palace. I have all the luxury and all the goods um, and all the excellent food and opportunities. And yet I don't have to bear the terrible responsibility of the crown. And I am not the one who has to figure out, say, uh, the, uh, the solution to this plague. But, like all the people around, I'm simply looking to help you. Which I, I think is a pretty good argument. Why would he want the crown if he already has the perks of royalty without the responsibility? Who would? Sort of like the difference between being a prince and being a king. I think of young Simba as opposed to Mufasa. Simba has a pretty uh, charmed life. So does Creon. Alright. Well, Oedipus continues to project his feelings of insecurity onto figures of responsibility. So, um, something I, I want to take a moment here to explain, and I'm going to explain a few psychological terms today, as well as a couple of theories, is projection. Projection is, again, a word from psychology. It does originally come from psychoanalysis, which the 19th century Viennese neurologist um, uh, Sigmund Freud came up with. But it means uh, the process of displacing one's feelings onto a different person, animal, or object. So if I am myself insecure about something, I might project my insecurity onto someone else. And uh, if I feel threatened uh, and insecure about my position as a legitimate king, I might suggest that someone else is threatening me. Uh, and so I might suggest that even though my feelings come from within, that they're actually being caused from without. Uh, a more typical example of projection is like when, say, you're angry and you start telling the person that you're speaking to who has made you angry that they're angry. You seem very angry. So uh, to project something means to throw it. Um, and so um, you are throwing your emotions onto something or someone else. And so who is it that uh, Oedipus is projecting his insecurities onto? Well, Tiresias. Tiresias is himself a legitimate authority. He is a prophet who is blind uh, in terms of senses, but is uh, very much open-eyed to truth. His legitimacy is unquestioned. He also seems to feel threatened by Creon, who himself has a blood connection to the crown, is older, and uh, was raised in Thebes, has a, a very strong connection to the city that Oedipus cannot claim, even though he is now king. Uh, and his, uh, his claim to authority is fairly weak. He did one heroic act, and now he's married to the queen, but that's not nearly as much as Creon has at his back. So Oedipus must now take responsibility, not simply for his kingdom, but for himself. And I, I say here as sort of an example, uh, this is the hardest lesson for young people. Uh, and in fact, uh, a very famous, uh, now at this point, cliche quote by Mahatma Gandhi, uh, 20th century freedom fighter, was uh, that uh, if you want to change the world first, you must change yourself. And so. One of the lessons Oedipus is going to learn here is the best thing he can do for his kingdom, that he can do for his world, is not simply to, um, not simply to take responsibility for, uh, for the people around him, but to take responsibility for himself and his own actions and the consequences of them. And I, I will say that that is what young people struggle with. They often say, what do you want to do with your life? And they say, I want to save the world. Or, I want to improve the world. And it's like, okay, well, first you should probably learn uh, what a participle is. First, you should probably learn to clean your room. First, you should probably learn uh, the necessary skills to make you a useful tool in that endeavor, in that war. Um, and so, uh, if you want to take responsibility for others, perhaps you should start with yourself. And that is one of the major themes of this text. In any case, Creon and Oedipus conclude their argument. Creon says, the only reason that he came 
to this stage is because he heard Oedipus defaming his name in his perspective from no reason. He has just done exactly what Oedipus asked him to. He went to, you know, he went out of his way, left the comfort of his palace to go to D uh, Pitho in order to talk to this uh, prophetess, and uh, she did, and, and he came back and gave the prophecy that was given to him. He's done everything right as far as he's concerned. Why is Oedipus now uh, slandering his name? Well, Oedipus accuses Creon of putting Tiresias up to calling him the murderer of Laius. Because, and this is Oedipus' reasoning, Creon would stand to become king. And, uh, uh, well, uh, Creon says that since he has self-control, again, that self-idea, and wisdom, he does not want such a burden, just as I was saying earlier. He says, but do not charge me on obscure opinion without some proof to back it. And I think that's an excellent thing for him to say. If you are going to make a charge against somebody, particularly a legal charge, particularly the biggest legal charge you can make of insurrection, insubordination, and um, a, a crime against the crown itself, uh, a, a crime of being traitor, then it should be based on something more than just your whim, your feeling, or your emotion. And yet this emotion, this feeling, this opinion that is taking hold of Oedipus is, um, is very powerful. But it, does not, uh, it would not, in a court of law, serve as evidence. Just because you say, I feel like this person is the murderer, uh, does not uh, make that true. And most other humans will say, um, well, we feel like you are crazy, um, or something like that. In any case, Creon, it is not just likely to count your knaves, that's a, like a ruffian, a rogue, as honest men, nor honest men as knaves. To throw away an honest friend is, as it were, to throw your life away. Man loves best. That's a very beautiful idea right there. That uh, a friend, very similar to what Aristotle in the fourth century says, that a friend is another self. And so if a friend, an honest friend, is um, among the best things in the world, or let's see, to throw away an honest friend is, as it were, to throw your life away, which a man loves best. So, so he makes an equivalency between friendship and life. And to throw away a friend is like throwing away your life. Uh, one of the worst things you can possibly do. And so Creon says, you know, be careful when you throw around these slanderous words about those who are loyal to you, because um, uh, you can lose, the, just as you can lose your life, so can you lose your friends, which are, in his account, as valuable as a life. And so uh, I consider that a good life lesson as well. All right, Creon then exits, and Jocasta enters, and she is in a flurry, wondering about why uh, Oedipus is accusing uh, their brother-in-law of uh, what he has uh, uh, of treachery, essentially. Oedipus says, I must rule. And Creon says, not if you rule badly. Okay, so this is just before uh, Jocasta enters. And then, uh, and uh, I, I have often wondered whether this is supposed to uh, be playing out a drama in uh, Oedipus's own conscious or unconscious. Um, I must rule, not if you rule badly. The idea here being that, uh, Creon's idea being that if you are an unjust ruler, you are no ruler at all, which in the Middle Ages, Thomas Aquinas will say that an unjust ruler has no uh, right to rule, that one must serve an ideal, and that the ideal is the true Lord that one serves, not the person who attempts to embody it. And so Oedipus again shows, I must rule this necessity, this part of his identity is that he must lead, and yet he is uh, failing to account for the fact that he, he uh he must not simply lead, but lead well in order to be a true leader. In any case, Jocasta, like a mother or a wife, then immediately scolds Oedipus for his public arguing as if he were a child. And Creon 
explains again. Uh, Creon is going to exit in a moment. I'm mis I, I spoke mistakenly earlier. Uh, Creon explains that Oedipus has served him an ultimatum. Either he must die or be banished. Die or be banished for a crime that he did not commit that Oedipus has no evidence for. And so, is uh, Oedipus ruling well or badly in this moment, having one of his greatest subjects, uh, accusing one of his greatest subjects of something he has no evidence for? And in fact, um, uh, uh, suggesting an ultimatum uh, where both choices are bad, die or be banished, equally bad uh, in this time and day. In any case, the chorus and then Jocasta agree that Creon should be trusted. There's no evidence that he is untrustworthy, except for Oedipus's uh, negative feelings. And, well, then Oedipus shares sort of what is at the root or close to the root of this internal turmoil that is causing him to act so recklessly, so out of sorts. He shares with horror that, well, if Creon is to be trusted, does that mean that Tiresias is correct? And correct about what? Tiresias said a couple things. You murdered your father and you lay with your mother. Well, this would not be in Jocasta's interest, necessarily, for, uh, for um, Tiresias to be right, because then um, if Oedipus uh, were fated to lay with his mother, she in some way might uh, be his mother. And so it gives a dark foreboding to Oedipus. And then Creon leaves after insulting Oedipus' nature. So he actually exits here. I apologize for saying he did earlier. The chorus and Jocasta... Oh, that's a duplication. Jocasta and Oedipus, husband, wife, mother, and son. All right. I have a couple interesting ways to look at this interaction. A couple theories to share with you in order to help you understand what's happening when Oedipus speaks to Jocasta. So, uh, one of the psychoanalysts that followed after Sigmund Freud, who I mentioned yesterday, was Carl Jung, his 20th century analytical psychologist. And so the idea here is that uh, Jocasta is in some way a representative of a bringer of consciousness, someone who makes you more aware of the world around you, someone who teaches you something valuable about the world or yourself. She is herself the symbol of a woman as a wife or as a mother, which is conflated with the bringing of a man to consciousness through suffering. This is, a, a, this is sort of a sophisticated point that um, you will see a little bit more in the uh, form of Eve and the form of Mary in the stories that we'll consider next year. Eve is considered a bringer of suffering and that man became conscious uh, alongside her by the eating of the apple of the tree of knowledge of uh, good and evil. And Mary is considered a bringer of suffering and that she brings uh, a man into the world who is doomed to die. And so women in mythology sometimes are considered figures of uh, uh, suffering or bringers of suffering into the world. In the Greek um, tradition, uh, mythology, there was a woman named Pandora who was created um, by, I believe it was by Epimetheus, it might have been by Prometheus, the Titan, she was created by one of the Titans, and um, she was created explicitly in order to bring suffering to mankind, and so this is why I, 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 I bring these ideas up, because Jocasta is here to make Oedipus aware of something that will cause him great suffering. And so there is some piece of information she will share with him that will change his life entirely. Alright. Uh, therefore, Jocasta will help teach Oedipus a truth he does not want to hear. And unknowingly in a way, because she doesn't know that she's going to be doing that for him. She thinks she's going to be consoling him. And yet, she will do quite 
the opposite. So, because in expanding his consciousness, in allowing him to see the truth of his situation, he will endure greater suffering because he will actually realize that he is actually the source of his suffering. And not only his suffering, but the suffering of all his people, that he, through his actions of killing his own father and of laying with his mother, has polluted Thebes, and that he has brought plague onto Thebes and infamy onto his name, and that is what he will be learning over the course of this uh, play. His mistake so far is that he does not consciously embrace this, but he attempts actively to reject it. He is aiming for the truth, while also trying to keep himself from the truth at the same time. And I have something to say about that here. There are two ways to look at that. How is it that a human can want something and not something all at once? How is it that you can be motivated to see the truth, but also motivated to keep yourself from the truth? Is that a state that humans can actually find themselves in? Well, I have two differing theories to show you how. The first is called the Freudian theory. This comes from that Sigmund Freud that I mentioned today and that I mentioned yesterday. He believes that the human has a mind that is made up of three parts. This is a theory. Uh, we don't know that there... Uh, this theory has not been invalidated or validated, but is still occasionally used in literary circles. So, these are the three parts of the Freudian mind. The id, which all these words come from Latin, by the way. Id means the it. And those are your basic animal instincts, your need for uh, food, reproduction, uh, anything related to the body. The ego, that's called your conscious mind. And, uh, in fact, ego means I in Latin. And so somebody who's an egomaniac is someone who's all about me, me, me. And then there is the superego. That means the above the, uh, the I, which is societal norms and judgment used to limit or oppress the desires of the end. And so the whole Freudian idea is that you are essentially your ego, but you have all these urges coming up from your instincts, which are your id, and you have to learn to repress those uh, by means of your superego, which means that you're like kind of a vicious little animal that wants to go around and consume everything and take everything you can, kind of like a pirate, but that you have to embody the laws of your people in order to restrain yourself so that you can live happily among other people. You can't eat all their food, you can't steal from them, you can't take their wives and still be happy. We know that from the Iliad especially, right? Uh, and also the Odyssey, can't be taking people's lives. Now, my question here is, is this a play? about the repression of the id by the superego. And you say, well, what would be the desire that would be being repressed there? I would say, well, uh, the Freudians would say it is the fundamental desire. The fundamental desire to kill the father, that means to become like the father, to become strong like him, and to lay with the mother, to take, to take a mate, as it were. Is, uh, is Oedipus struggling with this? I think the answer is maybe, but I think the next theory I'm going to share with you is actually much stronger than the Freudian now, the second sort of theory that I want to put in front of you comes from more recent work in neuroscience. It's called conflicting motivations theory. Uh, good work on this has been done by the affective neuroscientist named Jak Pinksepp. Oedipus, on the one hand, wants to be a hero and wants to solve the mystery of the plague of his people. True, that's one motivation. But his second motivation is that he does not want to see himself as a patricide, killer of his father, a committer of incest, layer with his mother, and bringer of plague, a destroyer of his own people. So he is motivated to see himself in one way, and motivated not to see himself in another. How does he resolve this internal conflict? This causes a, uh, a term right here from social psychology called cognitive dissonance. And see if you've ever felt this before. 
It is discomfort felt by one who holds conflicting ideas or beliefs at one time, like Oedipus, potentially being a hero, and yet potentially also being a parasite or incest committer. A very famous example of, uh, say, feeling cognitive dissonance is, you know that smoking cigarettes is bad for you, you know that it will lead to lung cancer over time, and yet you still do it. And so each time you do it, you feel sort of uneasy, ill at ease. Or say, you want to be a good friend, but you also like your friend's girlfriend, and then you try and hold her hand. And while you hold her hand, you feel a little bit uneasy because on the one hand you're doing one thing you want, but on the other hand you're betraying yourself and your friend. And so you can be a very complex creature here. You can be motivated to do one thing and yet another. Or say you want to get in shape and you go on a diet. And then the second a big pizza is put in front of you, do you abstain from it or do you eat it whole? Eat it whole. And yet, do you feel so good about yourself afterwards? You might feel okay in the moment. Uh, yeah, I've seen a lot of nods. A lot of nods. You eat that whole pizza. You just... Do any of you fold pizza and eat it? Make it into a pizza sandwich? I consider that a strong move with pizza. A strong move. In any case, that's what cognitive dissonance is. And I think that that's actually what's going on with Oedipus right here. He is motivated to help and save his people, but he also does not want to see himself as what he actually is, which is... I mean, just put yourself in his own shoes. Would you want to recognize yourself as a murderer of your own father who brought plague on your people and also laid with a parent of yours? I'm seeing also some nods out there. Again, that's kind of funny. In any case, uh, okay, good. All right, Oedipus and Jocasta continue to speak. Back to the narrative itself, now that we have a, a theoretical framework with which to play. Jocasta asks for Oedipus to explain the situation. Why are you saying these crazy things about Creon, everything was good, except for this plague, until now, and now you seem to be uh, flying off the handle, losing control. Um, Oedipus explains that Creon has accused him of murder through conspiring with Tiresias, through the prophecy of Tiresias, and then Jocasta absolves Creon, which, again, if it is not Creon who is at fault, again, the finger starts to point more and more at whom? Oedipus, yes. So Jocasta says this, the former king, who was her husband, Laius, and she, received an oracle long ago. Okay, another one of these prophecies. Laius was fated to die by his son. Icy cold uh, blood goes through our veins. But he died by robbers. So this must be untrue, she says. And she says, and we pierced the ankles of that son, and we killed him. Something interesting. Notice again that there's a disfiguration on their son. His ankles are pierced. Just like uh, Odysseus had a recognizable scar above his knee. If this son, who was supposedly killed by Jocasta, is still alive, he should have some mark around his ankle from having his ankles pierced. So we'll have to see whether Jocasta's story holds up. Were there robbers? Who killed Laius? Was their son not included? And was their son actually killed? We'll have to uh, investigate. Oedipus then asks, um, well, was Laius killed at the crossroads? This is an area out in the country uh, in front of Thebes, an area that Oedipus uh, traversed in order to get to Thebes from his original home, or his, uh, he thinks, original home of Corinth. At Focus, where the road splits in two from Delphi and Dahlia, how long ago was this Laius killed, he asks. Well, 
the news came to the city just before you became king. And so Oedipus is trying to orient himself. He's like, where and when was the king when he died? He's trying to see whether he was in that same place. Um, even though it doesn't fit the facts of the situation that he has been fed so far, that it would have been him since there were a plurality of men who killed the king. And, uh, and also the son of Jocasta, who Tiresias claims that Oedipus is, is was supposedly directly killed by her. And then Oedipus even continues to ask about life. He says, how did he look? What did he look like? And uh, he starts to realize that he thinks he has called curses on his own name in ignorance. So here are the details that he asked for. There were five men around Laius, a herald, a chariot, and a king. This is part of how he looked. One servant escaped and told Jocasta this and then begged to be sent to the fields. We will see that servant later on. Oedipus then summons him back. He must understand the conditions under which Laius died and know whether what he is being told is the truth. He is summoning this servant back to confirm his fears and also, unfortunately, Jocasta's. Now, Oedipus now confides in Jocasta. He has a little bit of revealing to do himself. And remember, even though we, through the uh, convention of dramatic irony, know the full situation, he and all the characters on the stage have to step-by-step step figure it out. It's like we're like a divine being that sees the beginning, middle, and end all at once, whereas they are the foolish humans bound by time. Polybus and Merope were Oedipus's parents in Corinth. One day, a drunken man called Oedipus a bastard, which means illegitimate heir, which uh, really upset him because he thought that he was the natural born son of Polybus and Merope. And uh, to hear this sort of thing is, uh, um, um, uh, how do I say, not disheartening so much as it is um, unbalancing. It takes him, uh, uh, makes him question who he really is. Uh, disorienting. There we go, that's the word I'm looking for. So Oedipus goes to, or went to in the past, Pitho, uh, for the truth, to ask Apollo. And what he learned there is that he had a fate. A fate to kill his father and lie with his mother. Now, the fact that he's revealing this in front of Jocasta, you might think that she would immediately connect the dots, because there are two things that she knows that Oedipus doesn't know. One is this, she knows that she had a son who also had a fate to kill his father and lay with his mother, which is why she... And uh, Laius wanted to kill the son. However, she knows, and Oedipus, and we are not supposed to know yet, that she did not directly kill the son. They gave another guy, a shepherd, the dirty work to do. And that he did not, and she does not know this yet third piece of information, which is he didn't kill Oedipus either. He actually gave him away to a shepherd from a different country, a different country which was Corinth. And uh, in Corinth, there was a king and a queen, and their name were their names were Polybus and Merope, and they had no son. And so they took in this orphan, and they raised him as their own. Oedipus doesn't know any of this yet. And yet he will. And so when Oedipus learns from the Pythian oracle that he was supposed to lay with his mother and kill his father, obviously he didn't want to do that. And so he wanted to ensure uh, as much as he could that that would not happen. And so he fled from his home. He fled from Corinth. And while... After he had been on his journey for a while, he ran into an old man at the crossroads. This old man tried to thrust him out of the way. In fact, struck him with a, a two-pointed goad. That's what a goad looks like, by the way. 
You don't want to have one of those hitting you on the head. That's supposed to hit like a beast of burden. It was much stronger than, say, you. And so, getting hit on the head like that threw Oedipus into a rage. It's like he lost his head for a moment. And having lost his head, he went on a rampage. And on that rampage, he killed four of the five servants and the old man, uh, who he does not know was Lias, but was, in fact, Lias, his father. He killed them all. And he says, have I any relation to this man whose bed I pollute? And he's starting to think that maybe, uh, maybe he killed Lias, and even though Lias isn't his father, and obviously um, uh, Jocasta would not be his mother in this situation, he would still be laying with the wife of the man that he killed, which is bad enough for him. And yet it is, uh, the situation is much worse than he expects. It's sort of like you go to the doctor and you think you have the flu and you find out you have stage 4, uh, that's terminal cancer. You're like, oh yeah, it's not going to be a very good two weeks. It's like, yeah, uh, it's actually going to be your last two weeks. And they're not going to be very good. Uh, so, Oedipus then hopes to hear from the messenger that it was robbers, not a robber, who killed Lias. Then he would, uh, then he would be, uh, uh, um, what, what is the legal term for this? Uh, 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 Having the onus taken, exonerated, there we are. He will be exonerated. If it were, in fact, the case that this servant had never seen Oedipus, and that it were robbers and not simply one man who killed this old man at the crossroads, therefore, it could not have been Oedipus. However, that is not what he is going to learn. You can really see the legal, uh, the, the legal line of reasoning in this text. You can see the uh, budding philosophy in it. Um, you must really keep your head to follow a play like this. In any case, Jacob said, even if you did kill him, you couldn't be a son, for we killed the son. So she reiterates that point. Jocasta then exits, searching for a peasant to bring the former messenger in order to alleviate the uh, fears <laughs> of Oedipus, and yet, of course, leading him closer and closer to the thing that he uh, fears most. And in fact, he doesn't even know what he fears most at this moment. He is very much disoriented. Well, then the chorus sings, Pray never to fall asleep, which is an expression for uh, um, becoming unconscious. You say, I, I woke up to this, or I opened my eyes to this truth when you learned something new. Of the laws of man and God. So, never fall asleep to the laws of man and God. Why is the chorus sing singing about this right now? Is the idea that in some way one of our characters, our protagonist perhaps, Oedipus, has become unconscious of the law of man and God's? Has he trespassed on the law of man and gods? What is this law? Is the law that one is not to kill one's own blood? Is the law that one is not to lay with and procreate with one's own blood? Perhaps so. In any case, the ambition of men generally helps the state so long as God protects one. And so Oedipus' ambition is, uh, is helpful insofar as the gods are helping him. But his ambition to be king perhaps has uh, led him down a very dark path. But if a man is arrogant, the gods will smite him. That's an old word for destroy him or fulminate him. And so, hmm, is the chorus here accusing Oedipus of being arrogant and of falling asleep to the laws of the gods? Is it the case that is Oedipus' fate being blamed for his actions or is his own intellect and his lack of awareness of his fate? This is an interesting, sophisticated question. And so, the chorus concludes by saying that oracle, Apollo's oracle, and thus Apollo, is dishonored. Show your might in ill will, Zeus. They are saying, whoever has uh, committed these wrongs against the laws of gods and men through arrogance should be punished 
in order to remove the stain of pollution, of plague, from our people. And that person is going to happen to be old Oedipus, sadly enough. Jocasta re-enters. These, uh, these are the images on this uh, picture of the play we're actually going to watch. Notice that uh, Oedipus is uh, golden bronze, sort of like the sun, whereas his wife Jocasta is silvery blue like the moon. Bless you. So Jocasta knows Oedipus is out of his mind right now. He seems he's more and more blithering. He's more and more um, uh, frantic in a frenzy. And so she goes to, uh, or we go to Apollo for wisdom. And a messenger looks comes in looking for Oedipus. This is the messenger that Jocasta had sent for. The messenger brings, again, good and bad news. And so here is the bad news. Polybus, king of Corinth, is dead. That means uh, Oedipus's father that raised him is dead. Very sad. And yet, to Oedipus right now, this also makes him quite happy because it means that he can't possibly live out his fate because his father has died and he was not there to kill him. And therefore, the oracle must be wrong. And that is, whoo! A big relief for Oedipus. And Corinth wants Oedipus to come be king, which is also good. So he's relieved. The oracle is wrong. He can go be a king of a second place now. Things are looking very nice for him on this slide. And yet, Oedipus laughs in derision at Apollo learning this fact. Not a very smart thing to do, Oedipus. And he calls oracles worthless. And he thinks that he was himself misled by fear. And then Jocasta says something very famous, and this will be one of the last things that I say today, in a moment of reprieve, right before the crushing weight of all that Oedipus has done and, all, and what he has become for not only this time but all time, uh, uh, crushes, uh, uh, comes down upon him. Jocasta famously uh, responds to Oedipus' fear of laying with his mother by giving a quote from which we derive the uh, term, uh, the edible complex for Freud. Again, this is another psychoanalytical term, just like projection, just like the id, ego, and superego. Here's the edible complex. Make sure you know all these terms for Friday. Here's the quote. Why should man fear, since chance is all in all for him, and he can clearly foreknow nothing? Best to live lightly, as one can unthinkingly. As to your mother's marriage bed, don't fear it. Before this, in dreams too, as well as oracles, many a man has lay with his own mother. But he to whom such things are nothing bears his life most easily. And so my question here, she seems to be arguing for a very interesting uh, philosophy of life, which is this. There are terrible things that are happening at all times and terrible things that have happened to you and will happen to you. So best just not to think about these bad things. And the less you think about these bad things, the happier you will be. And yet, perhaps that sort of thinking uh, does not make bad things disappear, but allows them to grow into terrible things. Perhaps it is the case that uh, if Oedipus were just to let sleeping dogs lie, he would be happier. And yet, perhaps uh, this plague would continue to ravage the city and destroy everybody, and this advice is terribly wrong. I, I don't know. Do you think that ignorance is bliss? Do you think that ignorance is, ignorance is bliss until painfully replaced by knowledge which one's ignorance kept one from? It's interesting. You know, I do wonder whether, say, a drug addiction works like that. At first, you're like, oh, well, this isn't affecting me, and I can stop, and 
uh, you know, it's just one more, it's just one more, it's just one more, and then if that drug happens to be alcohol or tobacco, you know, your liver could be destroyed by the, uh, the, by, uh, <laughs> um, by the alcohol, and of course your lungs could be destroyed by the tobacco. I wonder if also that is sort of a justification for doing any sort of like vicious or sinful thing. I, I just lay with Helen once and then take her back to Troy. There's no way Menelaus is going to follow me all the way back there uh, with a thousand ships behind him and then destroy my entire people. I just wonder. I wonder if this sort of thinking gets people into more trouble than it saves them from. Hmm. In any case, that's where we end today. <laughs>